with a very, very great privilege of being able to travel all around the world, you know, far and wide. You know, when I was a kid, my dad had a serious, you know, they used to call it wanderlust. I don't know if they still call it uh, that way. You know, I'm an old guy. So, you know, to me, yeah, this is my vocabulary. But wanderlust, you know, uh, I just remember when I was a kid, you know, our family would gather around the TV, maybe some of you older guys uh, and, and, uh, that are married to younger women, of course. Uh, you, know, you older guys remember, you know, uh, we would gather around the TV and we would watch these things called travel logs. You know, travel logs, that's what they used to be called. It's kind of like a, a Rick Steves program today. You know, they used to be called travel logs. They were just these really old pro programs, probably most of them, I think, were probably filmed with a Super 8 camera, you know, a little Kodak kind of thing, you know. And uh, they would go places and take pictures of places, places that you always dreamt about going to, but, you know, uh, probably would never have the opportunity to go to, you know. Uh, but God has given Tina and I just wonderful, wonderful opportunities to travel the world and to share the love of Christ with many, many people in foreign lands. And, uh, you know, when I travel, one of the things I always look for, one of the things I always take notice of is crosses. I mean, it's just a thing for me, you know. You see them alongside the road. Uh, you know, sometimes that's where there was a terrible accident, so they put a cross there. Sometimes they just put a cross there, I hope to believe. I don't know. But, you know, you see people, they wear crosses as jewelry, you know. Uh, crosses on necklaces, crosses on, uh, you know, earrings with crosses. You know, even, even bracelets with crosses. Uh, so many people wear crosses. You know, rock stars wear crosses. Guys like Jay-Z, uh, Steven Tyler, uh, you know, they wear crosses. You know, one time, if, again, if you're an older guy, one time back 1986, you might remember, Madonna even was seen on stage, seemingly nailed to a cross, wearing a crown of thorns. You know, maybe, again, some of you guys remember that. Uh, but believe it or not, 20 years after that, right, 2006, NBC, NBC of all, of all networks, <laughs> NBC thought it was so offensive, they pulled the special that they were going to do uh, on uh, Madonna and her concert. You know, it was probably under pressure uh, that they were going to boycott. In fact, it was under pressure that people were going to boycott, you know, a major supporter. So they pulled it. I wonder if NBC today, would consider doing something like that, that that, uh, that kind of antics would be so offensive. Well, all kinds of celebrities wear crosses. You know, the Kardashians wear crosses. Uh, they're frequently seen with them. Johnny Depp, one of Johnny Depp's good friends and guys he says he idolizes. Keith Richards wears a cross. You know, uh, Demi Lovato. You know, if, if you don't know who Demi Lovato is, you know, she used to be on this program called Barney and Friends. You know, that purple, that purple dinosaur that, you know, I wouldn't let my kids watch, man. That was like just dumb them down, you know. Now she's a big star, I guess. I don't know. But Demi Lovato, not only does she wear a cross, she has a, she has a cross tattooed right here on her hand, on her right hand, underneath her uh, pinky finger. You know, sports icons, they wear crosses. They have crosses tattooed on their bodies. You know, David Beckham, a soccer superstar, he's got a cross tattooed on the back of his neck. And, and you know... Everybody wears crosses. Even little kids wear crosses. And you know, uh, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, especially since we do have some visitors here. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of a stinker by nature. 
You know, if you know me very well, yeah, I'm a little bit of a stinker, you know. But when I was practicing, if a patient came into my office for treatment and they wore a cross, I, I like to say to them, you know, I see you're wearing a cross. What does that mean? Does that make you some kind of Christian or something? You know, I mean, is there, is there a connection between the cross and going to heaven? You know, I'm interested in spiritual things. I mean, you know, does the cross mean something special? And, uh, you know, literally, I found that 9 out of 10 people, literally, 9 out of 10 people wearing a cross couldn't tell me what the cross meant, right? They couldn't tell me what it was a symbol of. And to my very great surprise, when I would open the door for people who claim to be Christians, people who claim to have a relationship with God, when I opened the door for them to witness to me, you know what? They couldn't tell me what their cross meant or how it uh, could be that I could get to heaven, you know? Uh, they just said, well, you know, I, mean, I, I don't know. Be a good person, maybe? I don't know. Like, what does that mean? I bake cookies for my neighbor? What does that mean? Right? I'm a bit of a stinker. You know, uh, those people that wore a cross that, that uh, didn't claim to be religious, you know, uh, they just saw the cross as a cool piece of jewelry, nothing more than, you know, something that cool people wear in our Western culture, you know, and they wore a cross because they just wanted to be cool. The cross, though, was actually a symbol of horrific suffering. You know, it was a symbol of suffering and shame, and it's emblematic of death and defeat, right? It was an instrument of Roman execution and torture, right? People in the early church actually, people in the early church were actually afraid to display a cross for fear that it would bring about mocking or uh, some kind of ridicule, even persecution and death in some cases. But after Constantine supposedly converted to Christianity in the fourth century when he became the emperor of Rome, you know what? He abolished uh, crucifixion as a method of punishment, as a method of execution. And it was then, in the fourth century, that the cross uh, was then widely promoted as a symbol of the early church. And... Uh, the cross now, I mean, it's a universal symbol, right? It's precious in the sight of believers of the death of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, how did Jesus die? You know, I think it's interesting when you read through the Gospels, uh, you know, you see Jesus, the description of Jesus, you know, he's the one who claimed to be the promised Messiah. He claimed to be the king of the Jews, you know, this carpenter from Nazareth, he went about doing good. You know, he, he was doing things that only God could do, proving his claims of being the Son of God, proving his claims of being uh, the Messiah that was prophesied about hundreds and hundreds of years uh, in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years of before uh, he came along in the Old Testament. You know, he did things like he healed the sick. He cleansed lepers of what is an incurable disease, right? He opened the eyes of the blind, even those that were born blind, that never saw, right? He fed the hungry. And you know what? He fed the hungry with literally next to nothing, mind you, right? Uh, he made whole those people that were lame, people that had never walked before. They were lame from their, from their mother's womb, from birth, 
and he raised the dead. You know, Lazarus, I'm talking about people that, you know, uh, that died and, hey, if we get to him really quick, we can revive him. It wasn't that kind of thing. Lazarus was dead four days. You know, as a medical professional, I'll tell you, no one in their right mind would think about paddling, you know, getting an AED and paddling somebody who's been dead four days trying to revive him. I mean, it's ludicrous. You know what? Jesus had power over death. I mean, it's amazing. He cast out demons with a single word. He even rebuked the wind and the waves, and uh, they obeyed him. They became still and calm. You know, no one but God could do any of the things that Jesus was doing, certainly not all of those things that he did. And none of those things that he did, listen carefully, none of those things that he did was disputed by anybody that was opposing him in his day. They all knew it was true, and they never, oh, no, you didn't raise Lazarus from dead. Oh, yeah? Why are you trying to kill him, right? Uh, Yeah. But with no regard to the miracles that Jesus did, you know, the miracles that he performed, with no regard to the wonderful teaching that he gave, and, boy, his teaching was wonderful. It left people astonished. When Jesus taught, you know, when they heard the words that he said, they they marveled, the Bible says. You know what? They recognized him as one who taught with authority. And it was an authority never before heard of or never before witnessed by anyone. And they bound him as a common criminal. And they beat him. You know what? They blindfolded him and punched him repeatedly in the face, saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Prophesy to us. Who is it that struck you? And then they led him bound to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who questioned him and then had him scourged. And, uh, you know, let me just tell you what scourging is all about. They stripped Jesus and they tied him to a whipping post. And uh, they, they began to flog him with a cat of nine tails. A cat of nine tails, or a flagellum is what it's called, right? Uh, you know, it's just a leather handle with, you know, these, le- uh, sorry, a wooden handle with these leather thongs hanging off of it. And those leather thongs were embedded with lead balls, you know, broken pieces of sharp bone, and shard glass, you know? And the intent was strictly to rip away the flesh, strictly to rip away the flesh, leaving the victim's back hanging, just ribbons of flesh and muscle just hanging on the back, reducing their back to something akin to hamburger meat. That's what it, that's what it was. That's the reality of it, right? You know, it was, wasn't uncommon at all that uh, scourging would expose vital organs. It wasn't uncommon when a person was scourged that it would actually rip away ribs from the rib cage. You know, when the Romans, man, I mean, the Romans, they were just uh, brutal. They didn't care so much about it. They weren't super careful just to make sure he got scourged on the back where it's already so very tender, right? So what happened was, they would be whipped from their head and shoulders 
all the way down their back, their buttocks, and the back of their legs. And again, that, those thongs would go across into the front of the body just to rip away the flesh. And then after that, they mocked him. They mocked him. Placing a purple robe on him. You know, uh, purple being the color of royalty. And then, you know, they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his brow. And then they took a reed and beat it upon his head, just causing those thorns to dig into his scalp and into his forehead. And then they bowed before him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! You know, they mocked him and then they beat him more and they spat upon him. His bloody face dripped with the spit of men. And I can't think of anything more disgusting than to be spat upon. Then they made him carry a cross to the place of his execution. Carrying a cross, you know, was something intended to show the world that you were guilty, deserving death. You know, but Jesus was neither guilty of any crime, nor was he deserving death. Over and over again, you know, you hear testimony. The common man, you know, uh, the common man recognized that Jesus did all things well, is what the Bible tells us. Again, over and over again, testimony of, of people. Pilate said over and over again, I find no fault in him. Pilate's wife even called him a just man. You know, the centurion at his death admitted, surely this was the Son of God. He'd seen thousands of people die, but no one like Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, he was sentenced to death. They made him carry a cross like a common criminal deserving to die. And then they took, you know, I don't know, eight 10-inch spikes and they nailed his hands and feet to the cross. You know, uh, I don't want you to think, I think it's a common misconception, I don't want you to think, uh, you know, that crucifixion was something like you might see uh, in a Catholic church, right, where Jesus is upright and his arms are stretched out. That's not the way they crucified people, uh, believe it or not. People were crucified with their knees bent and their knees turned roughly about 45 degrees. This is how they were crucified. And the reason they did that was it only took a single nail to pin both of their feet to uh, the cross. And they did it that way so that the condemned would experience the most amount of pain possible. I mean, you know what? Go home today. And just try to stay in this position for five minutes. Five minutes. There's no way. You know what? Uh, it becomes very painful very quick. And you don't have nails through your hands and your feet. And what they did is they raised that cross up with Jesus' body nailed to it, and they dropped it into a hole with a big thud. And again, just that drop. Boom. The pain. You know, I don't want you to think that the victim was way up there also like, hey, you know, how's, how's the weather up there? wasn't like that. You know what? Uh, a person that was crucified, their head was no more than seven or eight feet above the ground. And the reason why they did that is it allowed people who were walking by to spit on those that were being crucified. 
right? Displaying the disgust that they have for those people and what they've done. And many people not only would spit on them, but as they would walk by, they were within arm's reach where they could slap that person. Just again, just to add to their, their pain and discomfort, those people as they were being crucified. And that's what happened to Jesus Christ. That's the way he was crucified. And if all of that wasn't enough, <laughs> those who stood by watching Jesus being crucified continued to mock him and blaspheme him, saying, you know, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And the chief priests, along with the scribes and the elders of Israel, they they joined in the mocking, and they said, he saved others himself, he cannot save. You know, if he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let him, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Even the criminals even one of the criminals, started out both of them, just one of them, though continued, you know, uh, he, he began to mock Jesus too. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us too, right? The other criminal being crucified with Jesus also declared his innocence though. He said, you know, to the criminal mocking Jesus, said, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Man, the testimony over and over again. You know, when a person was crucified, they would actually die of suffocation. Right? As you're hanging there upon the cross, the muscles that are involved in inspiration would actually become paralyzed, making it impossible to breathe regularly. So what would happen is that person on that cross, he would pull down on the nails and he'd push up on the nails so he could just gulp in a breath of air really quick. And then the pain so searing, he would just slump down again. His entire body weight suspended on the, on the nails. He's just trying to get a breath of air. And as the victim bobbed up and down trying to breathe, you know, what happened? <laughs> that up and down motion just reopened the slightly coagulated wounds upon his back. You know, there were the, the shreds of uh, hanging flesh were the ribbons of hanging flesh, just being irritated by the rough and splintery wood of the cross. I don't want to get too graphic. Maybe it's too late, I don't know. But I don't want to get too graphic. But the reality of the cross is this. At the foot of the cross, there would be puddles of blood, urine, and feces because it was such a horrible, such a horrible, unspeakably detestable way to die. It was such a uh, gruesome nature that went along with crucifixion. Well, that's how Jesus died. But we need to ask the question, why did Jesus die? 
And the Bible tells us very clearly. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 12 says, He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressor. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 1 Peter 3, 18. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Why? Why? Why was it necessary for Jesus to, to suffer and die? Well, because Hebrews 9.22 says, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There's no, there's no taking sin away. Okay, but what about the sacrificial system? All those animals. What about offering a lamb or something? Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Redemption could only be made by what's called a near kinsman, a relative. That's why Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was born of a virgin. He became a man. The eternal God, the creator of the universe, took on flesh and became like one of us. Unlike any of us, though, he lived the perfect sinless life so that he could offer himself a sacrifice as the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 John 2, 2, the Apostle John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, he himself is our propitiation, uh, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. I don't know, maybe that word propitiation is in your vocabulary. I don't say it a lot. But propitiation, it's actually a word that has a twofold meaning. The first is it means to make atonement for. And the second, uh, it means to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus has, as the perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice for our sins, he has opened the door for us to be reconciled to God. Right? And he has satisfied the righteous indignation of God. God's wrath being poured out upon him instead of upon any of us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul explains it like this. For he, uh, speaking of God, made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul writes Galatians 3.13. I know I'm going through verses quickly. But Paul writes Galatians 3.13 saying, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed 
is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for our sin. Jesus going to the cross, taking our sin upon him and paying the penalty our sin deserved was the demonstration of God's love for us. It's a demonstration of God's love for me. It's a demonstration of God's love for you. It's a demonstration of God's love for the whole world. Jesus' death on the cross for our sin was all part of God's plan for our deliverance from sin. It was all part of God's plan. That was the price of redemption. That's why Jesus died. But hey, Gare, where's the resurrection come into play? It's Easter, the resurrection Sunday. What about that? Well, without the resurrection, no one can be saved. That's how important the resurrection is, right? Without the resurrection, no one can be saved. You can't just wear a cross. You can't just have a tattoo of a cross someplace on your body. You can't just think the cross is something cool and be saved. It doesn't work that way. It's through the resurrection that we know that Jesus' sacrifice for our sins was acceptable to God. Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He kind of argues the opposite. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. It's of no value. It's worthless. It's meaningless. It's in vain is what Paul is saying. But he goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says, and if Christ uh, is not, if he's not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. Verses 20 through 22, he says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, speaking of Adam's sin in the garden, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans 4, 25, saying Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that his sacrifice for our sin was acceptable to God. It's the proof of our justification, which is a legal term, which is when we're declared not guilty just as if I'd never sinned. Well, how, how do we know? How do we know that it actually happened, that Jesus actually raised from the dead? Well, first off, because of eyewitness accounts. Paul writes to the church in Corinth regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 says, He, speaking of Jesus, was seen by Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, then by the 12. Well, you might say, okay, but we know that eyewitness accounts aren't very reliable. Well, read on, verses 6 through 8. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain uh, to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, 
then by all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of time. What Paul is saying here is Paul is saying Peter saw Jesus alive after his death. Then he was seen by the 12, referring to the disciples. Then he was seen by over 500 people at one time. Okay, one or two eyewitness accounts you know, may not be very reliable. And I'll give you uh, the fact that maybe the eyewitness accounts of you know, the 12 disciples also you know, may not be very reliable. But Paul goes on to say, go talk to those 500 people that saw Jesus at once. Right? Go talk to them. Yeah, some of them have died since then, but the majority of them are still alive. Go talk to them and find out for yourself. And Paul went on to say, hey, after those 500 people that saw Jesus, well, guess what? You know what? He was seen by James and the rest of the apostles. Now, I find that reference to James very interesting because James was a half-brother of Jesus. And you know what? As you read in the Gospels, you understand that James and his other brothers didn't believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Who believes their brother is God anointed? Yeah, no, not me. I don't have a brother, but I wouldn't if I did. You know, and guess what? Jesus never did anything wrong too, so that was another thorn in their flesh. No, we don't believe that guy. You read in the Gospels, it says in John that even his brothers didn't believe in him. But later in the book of Acts, you find out that James is the leader of the early church. Well, hey, what changed his mind? Causing him not only to become the leader of the early church, given to the worship of Jesus Christ, but also caused him to be part of spreading the gospel across the world. Well, I suggest to you what changed his mind was seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead. I mean, that would change your mind, I think. I don't know. But not only that, Paul goes on to say, he's seen by something like 120 other apostles. That's what he's talking about when he says there are other apostles. And then Paul says, last of all, he was seen by me too. You know, there can be no dispute that Jesus has risen from the dead. The post-resurrection appearance of Jesus was verified not only in the Bible. Maybe you're not a Bible reader. Yeah, you know what? It's verified in secular history too. Josephus, a Jewish historian uh, employed by the Roman government to chronicle the Jewish history, he writes in the works of Josephus, he writes, he, speaking of Jesus, appeared to them alive on the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Oh, by the way, Josephus wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. He's just a reporter. He's just reporting the facts. Simon Greenleaf, 1783 to 1853. He was the, the royal professor of law at Harvard University. He is, he was, and is considered to be one of the world's leading authorities on evidentiary law. Right? In fact, his work is actually studied today in law schools around the United States and in Britain. And in his book, uh, The Testimony of the Evangelist, he explained the evidence, or uh, he examined the evidence, and he came to the conclusion that, quote, the witnesses were reliable and that the resurrection 
did in fact happen. This is a brilliant legal scholar. Simon Greenleaf is not the only one that looked at the evidence with a critical eye. A man named Frank Morrison, he was a British uh, lawyer. He set out to write a book repudiating the resurrection. Instead, he found the evidence so overwhelming that he became a believer himself. And you can read his findings in the book, Who Moved the Stone? He wrote it. And maybe you need something a little bit more contemporary. You know, a, a contemporary attempt to discredit uh, the Christian faith and cast doubt on the resurrection of Jesus Christ was done by Lee Strobel. He began as a skeptic uh, to look at the evidence. But what happened to Lee? He wound up having his own life-changing encounter with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can read his story in the best-selling book, The Case for Christ. These men came to their conclusions based on verifiable, historical, and archaeological evidence, which makes Jesus' resurrection, quote, listen, the single most provable event in human history, experts say. Crazy, huh? But now let's ask the question, okay, what, what should be uh, our response to all of this? Well, as believers, our response should be that we bow before him and give him our everything, right? All that we are, our future hopes, dreams, desires, just lay him at his feet. We should give him our lives to use as he sees fit for his glory. He's a good master. He's a loving master. We should just offer him everything we possess. We should surrender everything to him. Right? Our response, our response should be that we place in his loving hands right, the entirety of our lives. And we should eagerly give him everything, holding back nothing. Right? Knowing that we were purchased we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. As believers, we should also recognize the privilege we have in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 says this, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ, for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You know, it's a privilege to be called a Christian. It's a privilege and a gift to have this ministry of reconciliation entrusted to each one of us as believers. It's a privilege to share Jesus Christ with the world and to plead with them. To plead with them as if God were pleading through us. Please, please be reconciled to God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a privilege 
It's a privilege to allow our hearts to break over the condition of this lost world, right? To break over the condition of those people who don't know Jesus as their Savior. As believers, I think our response should also be to ask God to open doors for us. And I'm telling you, listen, somebody who knows it firsthand, He will open the doors and use you mightily if you just make yourself available. He'll use you in ways that you never thought possible. Why? Because he loves those people of the world that are lost, that don't know him. And he desires all of them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Listen, I love Jesus Christ and I want to spend my life serving him. Why? Because he took my sins away. He paid my debt. A debt I could never pay in a million lifetimes. You know? But now I'm forgiven. Now I've been declared righteous. Justified. Now I've been washed whiter than snow. Right? If you're here today, if you're watching online, and, you've, and you're not a believer today, if you've never accepted the free gift of salvation, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to know Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Everything he did on that cross, everything he endured on that cross, the mocking, the shame, the humiliation, he did it for you. He took your sins. He absorbed the wrath of God that should have been poured out upon you. And he bore the punishment your sins deserve so that you could come into a right relationship with God the Father and be adopted as a son, as a daughter. If you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, you know what? Here's the good news. You can be forgiven today. If you're watching online, you can be forgiven today. You can be declared righteous today just by placing your faith in him. Placing your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans 10, 9 and 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not maybe, not possibly, not eh, if he's in a good mood. No, no. That's all it takes. You will be saved. He goes on to say, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Salvation is not an issue of evidence. The evidence is out there. Just, just ask guys like Josephus, Simon Greenleaf, you know, Frank Morrison, Lee Strobel, and many, many other people many of which are here today. Jesus has been raised from the dead and is alive. And Jesus has promised eternal life to those that place their faith in him. He said in John 11, 25, 26, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives, that's us. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He promises eternal life. And he said in John 14, 19, 
because I live, you will live also. Salvation is not an issue of evidence. It's an issue of the will. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be forgiven? The worship team would come up at this time. We just close with a couple of thoughts. You know, Jesus died the death that each one of us deserved to die. You know, he offers the free gift of salvation. It's a gift that none of us could ever earn. You know, if you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ, you're watching online, you don't know Jesus Christ. My question is always, you know, what's stopping you from coming to Jesus Christ right now? Placing your faith in him right now and saying, have mercy on me, Lord. I'm a sinner. I've done wrong. Forgive me, I pray. Forgive me. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you're Lord of Lord. I, I know that you're, you're the Messiah. I believe that you died for me. I've heard it all my life. I believe you died for me and you rose again. You know, if you'll pray a prayer like that, that's how simple it is to be saved. You know, if you'll pray a prayer something like that, you know, the important thing is it's, it's just from the sincerity of your heart. If you're, you'll pray a prayer something like that, God will hear you and he'll forgive you of your sins. He'll wash you whiter than snow. He'll make you a new creation. You know, that old sinful you will pass away, leaving you with this new life to live for Jesus. And I'll tell you what, I've been a Christian now for 42 years. I've never regretted a second. I've regretted the 62, or sorry, <laughs> the 20 years before I was a Christian of not living my life for him. Let's pray. And I'd like to give you an opportunity this morning while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the love of Jesus this morning. Give you an opportunity to receive Jesus as your Savior this morning. If you're here and you've never given your life to Christ, but you would like to, you know, you can indicate that by just raising your hand. And I'll pray with you to receive Christ. I'm not going to, you know, point you out. I'm not going to try to make you look foolish or anything like that. You know, I'm just going to give you a minute. If that's something that you'd like to do, you can raise your hand and we'll pray. You know, when I wasn't a, a believer yet, somebody would give an invitation. There was a wrestling that went on in my heart. I wanted it, but I wasn't sure. But God had received someone like me. Yeah, he'll receive someone like you because he received someone like me. There was a wrestling, like, I want it. I don't know. What do I have to give up? God doesn't want you to give up anything to come to Jesus. He wants you to come and let him love you. You know what? He'll work in your heart. Me, I continued to do drugs for three months. I didn't know it was wrong, and then the Lord spoke to me and said, Gary, I got something better for you. I just walked away from drugs. I walked away from a hardcore lifestyle of drugs. And God blessed me, blessed me, blessed me beyond my wildest dreams. This is just a time between you and him. If you'd like to receive Christ, raise your hand and we'll pray. We'll just give it a moment. He'll wait for you while you wrestle with that decision in your heart. If you're at home watching online, you'd like to receive 
the Lord, you know, all it takes is just to pray a prayer, something like that. And if you're here, you want to receive Christ, but you didn't, weren't able to raise your hand, you know, just pray in your heart right now. Lord, forgive me. I've sinned. I've done wrong. I'm sorry. Lord, I believe. I believe that you went to the cross bearing my sins. And I believe you died there and you were buried and resurrected again as proof of your sacrifice. Oh Lord, by faith, I receive it. I receive the forgiveness of the sins. Lord, will you just write my name in the Lamb's book of life and receive me into heaven when I die? Lord, would you give me the power to turn from sin and to live for you for the rest of my life? I ask it in your name, Jesus. You know, if you prayed a prayer like that, the Lord's heard you and he's cleansed you. Whether you feel it or not, it's not a thing of emotion. It's just a reality. He's cleansed you and you're now a child of God. Father, I do thank you so much for the resurrection. I do thank you so much for your sacrifice. And the resurrection is a proof of that acceptable sacrifice. Lord, we give you praise. We give you glory. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray these things. Amen.